0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you all. And um, there's a few more of you this week than were here last week. What we did uh, last week was we started... Is this a little bit too loud? It sounds loud to me. We we started... um, uh, a three-part series on the Noble Eightfold Path, and um, I think what I'll do is just continue along that line. And uh, I want to invite anyone to uh, ask questions during the talk if anything comes up, so that it's more of a conversation and that uh, the sense of of what we're talking about here becomes something that you can participate in directly so that you don't just hear it and then forget it when you (laughs) walk out. So uh, to review again the path factors uh, in the Noble Eightfold Path are right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. And the way that these are understood um, in a little bit uh, deeper context is that right view is actually the Four Noble Truths, the the view of understanding suffering, that there's an origin of suffering, an ending of suffering, and a way leading to the ending of suffering, which happens to be this Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, right intention is the intention of renunciation, the intention of goodwill, and the intention of ahimsa, or harmlessness. Right speech is abstaining from w- f- false speech, slanderous speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. Gossip, uh, lying, mean, unnecessary speech, mean-hearted speech, and just idle, stupid speech. Right action is abstaining from taking life, from stealing, and from sexual misconduct. And again, sexual misconduct here means uh, things like adultery, or using your sexuality in a way that harms yourself or other people. Right livelihood is giving up wrong livelihood. (laughs) I I like the way this is. (laughs) Giving up wrong livelihood, one earns one's living by right livelihood. So, what does that mean? (laughs) Uh, Some obvious things are are, the Buddha gives not uh, to deal in weapons and uh, sex trade and so on and so forth. These kinds of things. But one knows if they're if what they're doing uh, to earn a living is uh, you know helping or harming in any way at all Uh, you can begin to adjust and modify your behavior in that way Uh, right effort is the effort to um, recognize the kinds of things that tie us to habits so i don't really find myself very comfortable with the word defilement but this is the way it's described the effort to Drain the defilements that are within us, so the defilement in this case is not necessarily some deep, dark shadow thing it could be, but it could be something as simple as um, you know the tendency towards impatience or the tendency towards uh, irritability, or the tendency towards, um, you know, grasping and attaching on, or manipulating people; these kinds of things. So, to restrain these defilements, once they've, before they've arisen, once they have arisen, to uh, try to de- uh, to abandon them. So, to look for ways to, uh, you know, stop engaging in them. So, sometimes there are uh, practices that are Actual antidotes to these things, um, and one can practice that, or one can apply the uh, the skill of mindfulness to what 's actually coming up and use that to abandon the defilements. The next is the effort to um, recognize and develop wholesome states or <clears throat> states of loving kindness, generosity, virtue, and so on and so forth <coughs> and w- and once those states have arisen to maintain those states. So, in reviewing, it's to look at the defilements and to recognize the defilements and to restrain them before they have arisen. And if you find yourself in the heat of the moment and really given over to a fit of anger, um, you can or to the tendency towards anger, you you look for ways to restrain that. Uh, on the other hand, you're going to look for uh, ways to develop wholesome qualities, which you begin to recognize in yourself and others, and uh, ways to maintain those wholesome qualities once they've arisen. So that's what right effort is. It's bringing energy to that aspect of our lives. Right mindfulness is the contemplation of the body, feeling, mind, and uh, mind states are phen- of all phenomena here. And then right concentration in this context is the deep concentration that comes from in, in term from the suttas, it's from the jhanas, the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, and fourth jhana. So um, <clears throat> in reviewing this topic, I want to uh, just go back to one of the things that I said last week, and and that is, to begin it, is that the Dhamma here is uh, it's not a set of doctrines that is in, interested so much even in the origins or endings of things. It's not a creed that's been offered to us as uh, something that we need to believe in. Uh, Rather, it's um, it's a message of deliverance from suffering. And it's something that the Buddha invites us to try for ourselves. You come and you meditate and you take a look at your mind and you look at the habits of mind and you look at the ways that the application of mindfulness begins to transform your life. And then you decide for yourself whether this is something that um, is worth investigating further or, or practicing, but um, <clears throat> in this this message of deliverance, uh, there comes a way. And if we if we're going to take this on seriously, um, we have to know that there's some roadmap that there is some way that we can actually. Um, use to uh, verify that what's occurring for us is, is really worthwhile. So um, this way, of course, is the Noble Eightfold Path that we're talking about here. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, tells us four things that I want to share with you. The first is that uh, if we take this path up, that liberation is the inevitable result of the path and it's bound to blossom forth whenever we uh, practice in a steady and persistent way. So that's really encouraging. Uh, I find this really encouraging. And then <clears throat> he says that there are only two requirements for reaching this, this goal. So whether we um, set out with the intention to be totally liberated from suffering or whether we set out with the intention to find ways to um, clear up what's going on in our minds and just uh, hope for some kind of uh, uh, deepening happiness or access to happiness in our lives. He says that there's only two requirements with this path and this I love. The first is to start and the second is to continue to start and to continue, to start and to continue over and over and over again. And um, he says, if these two requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. This is the Dhamma, the undeviating law. And whenever I read this, it makes my heart leap because it's such a message of, of hope and <laughs> such a message of 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 real beauty. So he then goes on to say what follows is basically a matter of gradual practice and gradual progress uh, without the, the um, application of expecting quick results because they normally don't happen. Sometimes we have instantaneous insights and we think our life is going to change forever and then we get up off the cushion and we we go back to work and our boss comes in and it's like we haven't understood anything. And so uh, it can be discouraging. But on the other hand, um, once we taste the result of an insight or um, some some quality of of peace or spaciousness that we hadn 't known before, everything shifts, and there is a little bit more space around um, uh, the way that we deal with things at that point so uh, you know once once one sees anger as anger, just pure and simple, as a phenomena, a process that arises stands for a while, it unfolds, and then it passes away. Once, sees, once one sees that, the tendency to immediately identify with it, to immediately be um, pulled into that feeling of anger so that it overwhelms us and we don't even know what's going on because we're just angry at this point, uh, that it shifts, it gives us just a little bit more room. So if you, if you look at these two sheets of paper and you say, here's anger and here's the reactivity to anger. And in between is this pause, this space. Um, once mindfulness has identified anger, in the pause between the space be- before we go to overwhelm, and just get drawn into it and begin to embellish stories about how justified we are to be angry or or whatever. Um, The mindfulness allows us to somehow uh, use this pause, this space to um, apply a different approach to whether we're going to go there or not. It gives us a little bit of freedom to choose to apply a more skillful way of being. Um, And it also allows, in my own experience, it allows me... I've discovered that sometimes the triggering event, the anger, is not the real issue. This is just what's been triggered. The real issue might be that this makes this feels so unpleasant to me that I don't even realize my default pattern of response, and I experience it as first as aversion. But I'm so averse to being averse that I don't even know I'm averse, and I'm just washed away in this. But in that pause, I can see that the real problem lies over here, not here, because when I get here, I actually lose sight of what's happening here. This is this making sense? When, one loses sight of what's happening here, so one loses the initial triggering event that sets that sets this thing off, and so we start living our lives out of. Our habitual reactivity, and we don't know what's actually going on. We think we know what's going on, but we don't know what's actually going on. So, um, I've given a few talks lately, and I can't remember if it was in this talk last week or in in another one that I gave, but I I used the example of mindfulness being like a mirror, and so. All that the mirror does is reflect the image that's in front of it, period. It doesn't ascribe judgments, it doesn't think about the image, it just gives the image back to you. So the image in this example is the triggering event. So we get up in the morning, we go into the bathroom and we reach for the toothbrush and we start to brush our teeth and we look up in the mirror and we think oh my god I didn't get enough sleep or looking pretty good this morning Hmm? (laughs) that's all extra that's that's the mind those are mental constructs and the beginning of the way that we embellish because it's looking bad, oh my god I must have some, something horrible going on. You know, I'm working too hard and before I know it I've spun off and all I have done is had a visual contact of the image in the, in the mirror. That's it. That's all it that happened. And, <clears throat> and I don't even see the way that the mind is pulling me into my habits. So the cultivation of right mindfulness as a path factor um, is <clears throat> we begin to see the usefulness of it. Because I'm I'm digressing here, so bear with me. Excuse me. But what can happen when mindfulness is applied, even in a, 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 a like the example that I was giving, um, there can be a kind of of progress or a kind of insight, or actually a very profound insight, because when one sees clearly and gets it directly that this anger is just this process, this impermanent process, and can see the the causal matrix that occurs in a natural way, one can see the force of the habits that generally, um, you know, tie us to uh, to the way that we create our suffering or the way that we create our happiness, and and there can be. Um, there can be an experience of, of, of letting go. And so the letting go can occur in a way that's really effortless. It, it doesn't, it, it's not with the preference, it's not with a, the ego preference that I want something to be a certain way. It's in the seeing there's a release. It's actually a very subtle thing I'm talking about here, so um, I hope I haven't gotten, yes? Uh,
1: um, One thing I've noticed in uh, the aspect of uh, seeing things as they arise, or in the practice, is that uh, at times things tend to slow down where Mm. you're actually able to see an emotion arise, or there's anger, which Mm -hmm. is really surprising because usually when you're in the throes of an emotion or whatever it's instantaneous, and you're already in it, and the phenomena is that you start seeing it. It's like you you either sped up to its speed, or it's slowed down, or I'm not quite sure Mm what the dynamic is, but it's an interesting phenomena. Uh,
0: Well, my opinion on this is that um, when we take the time to, to, to meditate, we slow down enough to begin to see that the way the mind works. We begin to see that these things arise and pass away, and we begin to see the way that we habitually react to it. Um, in our normal day-to-day exchanges, our relationships with one another, things are happening so quickly. Uh, this example that I I gave you happens in like mind moments. It just happens so fast we don't even see it happening or notice it.
1: It, Is it really slowing down? Because synopsis doesn't slow down.
0: It's at a triggering level. Uh, uh, I I don't know that that the process slows down, but we slow down in some way that we begin to notice these things. So when we begin to practice, we give ourselves the time to retreat from the normal you know, exchanges that we're involved in, so that we can actually see things differently. So when many people come to meditation, they have all sorts of ideas about meditation, and I speak from personal experience. You're not supposed to think thoughts, everything's going to be blissful, there's going to be lights and ecstasy, and it just didn't work that way. At least not for me, it didn't work that way. So, uh, but had I not gone to the cushion, had I not taken up the practice of meditation, I never would have gotten to the place where I could actually see. I might have been able to get it in my mind. But what I just described to you, when it's a direct experience, it's a qualitatively different, different kind of... It's, it, it qualifies as an insight at that point. So we have these insights all the time. We just sometimes... it happens so quickly. That we actually miss miss out on them, or we don't we don't really um, appre- <laughs> we don't appreciate what a wonderful thing has just happened. So, did did that address your question or not? I don't I don't know, Victor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I. Uh, That's my feeling. That's one of the things that I think is the most useful about taking up the practice of meditation. It gives us time to slow down enough to see things that we don't get a chance to see in the middle of our normal everyday interactions with one another. So if you use the example of you're walking across the, uh, uh, the street in the crosswalk and someone comes around the corner quickly and almost runs you down. Well, there's this response. You know? It's one thing to set the example up and then to sort of play it through and look at it. It's another thing to be in the crosswalk and almost get smacked because then you're in the, the heat of it. So what meditation, one of the benefits of meditation is that it allows us to witness that type of thing happening. So whether in mind moments it actually slows down, or whether we just slow down. Isn't it the mind just kind of quiets down, so Mm -hmm. that you can actually see what's happening in the present moment? Yeah. It's really not slowing down, it's just the preoccupations... Exactly. Thank you. That's that's my experience as well. That's my experience as well. Which brings up an interesting question about what is time. Time is different things to different people at different times and different cultures. and you know what's fast, what's slow? Interesting. So um, <clears throat> So, uh, going back here to the to the to the talk that I was going to give, (laughs) the uh, the factors of the noble eightfold path are not necessarily to be understood to unfold in a sequential way, Um, but they are rather parts or components that contribute to and that, that actually support one another. Now, uh, in the beginning of our practice, there does seem to be some sort of uh, linear sequential unfoldment uh, taking place, or development taking place, and, and they split into three groups. And the first group is the group on moral discipline. Um, that's the, the group which is the Training in the Higher Moral Discipline, or sila, So that uh, what's included there is Right Speech, Right Action, and Right Livelihood. And then the second group is the Concentration Group, or the Meditation Group, which is the Training in Higher Consciousness. And that group is composed of the three path factors of Right Effort, Right Mindfulness, and Right Concentration. And then the last group is the Wisdom group, which is the training in the higher Wisdom, uh, the insight, which leads to liberating Wisdom, and that's Right View and Right Intention. Um, Now, when I read you the sequence of uh, of the Path Factors, Right View and Right Intention come first so people often will wonder why that is. And um, it's said that uh, you can't even begin the path until you have uh, um, um, sort of had some sense of what right view and right intention is. Right view actually provides a overall perspective for the practice, and right intention provides... The direction for us. So with the view of the Noble Eightfold Path, that, that there is suffering, a cause of suffering, an ending of suffering, and a way to the ending of suffering, and with the intention of goodwill and harmlessness and um, renunciation. And in this case, renunciation um, is referring to the deep habits of mind that we attach to. Um, this gives us a direction to, to sort of set the sail. But without the development of, of the other path factors, uh, especially the development of the training in uh, higher morality, uh, the rest of the path really doesn't unfold very smoothly. So um, one of the things that many of us have commented on is that in the West we come to the practice through meditation without really an emphasis on the cultivation of morality and virtue. But when we see morality and virtue as bringing a kind of harmony to, to our minds in the way that we live, we realize that when we move to the next grouping or the 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 training and concentration that a meditator who sits down and brings to the cushion all of their the mess from their life of living in a way that's not really harmonious or virtuous that their minds are going to be cluttered so if a person Um, is a habitual liar, for instance, Um, or, uh, um, you know, (laughs) steals things, or uh, you fill in the blank. You know, when you sit down and meditate, sooner or later, that's going to disturb your meditation. That's just all there is to it. And so, the meditation will reveal and sort of rub your nose in that. At a certain point, point. Um, and it will begin to change. One will begin to sort of change their patterns of of of, of behavior. Um, so, again, not to s- to speak in a personal way, but i I discovered when I began to practice. And began to look at the issues of uh, generosity. That uh, it was very easy to think of generosity in terms of like financial do- donations and so on and so forth. But uh, I-, I began to see that there were ways that uh, that I was being ungenerous in the fact that I wouldn't open my heart in certain ways. I wouldn't make my I wouldn't make myself available to other people. I wouldn't really authentically connect, and I begin to I began to see that as um, uh, you know, oh, this is what generosity really means. It's 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 being generous with myself, and I'm not I'm not able to do that. Why Why can't I do that? What's going on? So it it it, it sort of triggered a deeper looking and. Um, uh, and I began to understand this idea of of sila in a, a different way. I began to look at the way that I used speech um, to uh, you know, uh, create situations where my preferences, <laughs> where I could get my preferences fulfilled. And... Um, you know i had a career in my former life as in sales and so in sales i i learned how to not necessarily lie but to create a certain you get the idea and so i began to look at all that because i i began meditating when i was really a busy software sales guy you know and it just shifted my whole perspective. What was right action? What was right speech? You know, what was really right livelihood? I worked for a company, there were five or six thousand employees in, or more probably, and I worked with very, uh, many, many nice people, but, near as I can tell, every single person that worked in that con- company was motivated by greed. Every single person. How much can we make? And how can we make it faster than the next guy? And how can we, you know? And I was subject to the same cultural pressure. And I brought my own habits into that. And so it affected the way that I used language. Hello.
1: The word delusion comes to mind when I'm listening to your example of of being in sales and creating a, a, a use of language to distract or to attract a certain focus from the person you're, right? Mm-hmm. So what I'm getting, I think from what you're saying is when you realize, when you had insight into how you were using speech mm-hmm. to to do your work, uh-huh. that you are feeding into um, the experience of delusion. I mean, it's an al- it's an illusion, in a sense, what we right. do, and we're trying to right. manipulate. I can't think of a better word. Manipulate someone to look at something in a certain way. Right. That's creating an illusion. But when right. we create illusions, then we're feeding into the delusion. Right. Does that make sense?
0: It does uh, absolutely, and I and I wouldn't disagree with you on that. Uh, um, in 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 uh, from a practiced point of view, uh, uh, another way to look at delusion would be to not know what I was doing with my speech. That would be delusion, deluded, in ignorance. Yeah, yeah. That that would be. Um, Uh, a form of delusion. And quite frankly, what practice did for me was make me realize that I was deluded about the way I was using my speech. And that allowed me to um, uh, try to be more authentic and more uh, honest about it. I never thought that I was a liar. I didn't really go out and intentionally lie to anyone. I happened to be very successful in my career and part of the reason was that uh, I thought that people f- knew that they could trust me. And they could. And But, you know, I had the pressures of quotas and uh, managers on my back and, and I had to you know, and so there would be times that I would like move things along. And It's not just on the sales end. The buyers are doing the same thing. They're trying to manipulate the salespeople and squeeze you for the last time. And so it just becomes uh, that type of... But it's a rich territory to practice in if you want to bring practice. So it's like people think that you have to go off into a monastery or a, a, a retreat center and be totally secluded in order to learn anything in... In the Buddhist path, and that's certainly one way you can. But in raising a family, or being in a relationship, or having to go to work every day, these things come up, and you can test them, and you can see whether they, you know, uh, whether it makes any sense or not. So, uh, <clears throat> yes, that's a way of of creating delusion. And, and it's a way of, of recognizing delusion. But <clears throat> coming back to this, the cultivation of sila is absolutely essential in order to have access to the ability to actually meditate in a way that will settle the mind to the point that Insights will begin to arise that will lead ultimately to liberating wisdom that will uproot these habits of mind that have been um, you know running our lives. So the whole point of the path of practice is to bring us to this place where we begin to see with a mind that's clear we begin to see with clarity and and not through, through the lens of, of our old habits. Anyone else want to make a comment or a question here? <clears throat> OK, so moving on. Um, <clears throat> Let me just take a moment here. All right, so I, I'll just just review here that, uh, again, the moral discipline is the foundation for the development of concentration or for the meditation uh, practice. Concentration is the foundation for wisdom, and wisdom is the direct di- instrument for Liberation. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to switch to the, the next thing because I think I've talked enough about Sila here. Um, <clears throat> So uh, what I want to talk about now is the development of mindfulness, and um, this comes in the, in the concentration uh, grouping, and uh, mindfulness is, is literally the backbone of, of the practice. Without mindfulness, nothing is possible. And uh, mindfulness is is basically the the mental faculty through which the field of our experience is brought into focus and made accessible to insight so uh, mindfulness is that it's a special kind of attention, a bare attention that we bring to um, uh, to to what is actually happening with absent judgment or any kind of mental proliferation that goes along with with the example that I just gave you. Um, So classically, mindfulness is, is defined as remembering. So it's remembering to notice exactly what is happening without adding anything to it. So if we were doing a system of meditation like metta meditation and we were using the phrases and our mind wanders off when we remember that we're doing metta meditation and return to the phrases we have had a moment of mindfulness or if we're doing Anapanasati and we're focusing on the breath and the mind wanders off. Classically mindfulness is the moment of remembering or the act of remembering that the breath is the object and we return to the object. So that's a classical definition and that definition of mindfulness is the one that's used when people are practicing concentration a concentration practice. Another definition for mindfulness is the, the bare awareness that's brought to whatever is arising in our field of awareness from moment to moment to moment to moment. And, and by practicing this type of bare awareness, we begin to be able to connect the dots. And as we're able to stake more and more continuous with this act of mindfulness, we begin to um, experience the deepening of concentration. So it would be called temporary or momentary concentration. So um, mindfulness is basically... A skillful means for coming back into the present. And when our mind spins off into thoughts of the past, or we rush to the future and we get lost in anticipatory anxiety in the future, or what's going to happen, or planning, and so on and so forth, we're actually. Um, we've lost our grounding and we're out of the present moment and um, we're missing the only moment that actually is. Um, So what mindfulness does is it has a very powerful grounding um, aspect to it because if I asked you to bring your attention to... um, the feeling of the contact of your foot on the floor, or the cushion, or wherever your foot happens to be rested. At the moment that we bring our attention there, we're in the present moment. We can only know that when we bring our attention to it. If I asked you to close your eyes, Andrea gave this example in uh, one of the talks that I attended of hers. She said, close your eyes, everyone close their eyes, and um, bring your attention to the feeling of softness that you pick up from your lips touching one another. Now, bring your attention to uh, the feeling of the cushion or the chair that you're sitting on, the point of contact. Now bring your attention to the awareness that knows you're wearing clothes. Now bring your attention to the awareness that knows you're breathing. Okay, so when we do something like that, we realize that this is, this is how we practice mindfulness in meditation. As things come into our field of experience, whether it's something like the softness of our lips, some physical thing, or whether it's an emotion or a mind state or whatever, as these things arise in our meditation, and nothing is excluded, even if it's, anger or jealousy or, you know, bliss and and lights. Um, When we begin to just go with bare um, awareness from one thing to another, to another, to another, and we're able to stay with it, we begin to connect the dots. And in doing so, we begin to have, um, um, well, I, I, I won't describe it. Each of us begin to have, but our our meditation begins to stabilize. We begin to to um, to feel the benefits of this kind of mind training. So. Um, <clears throat> So I've gone all over the board today uh, with this. Excuse me for for uh, for doing that. I hope that I uh, I hope that it's been um, hasn't been uh, um, something that's, that doesn't make sense or that you're not able to connect the dots with where I'm going with this, but I, I'm combining notes from four different talks, and I think, where, where am I? I should, have, I should have stuck with one thing here. So uh, let me just ask you if anybody has any, any questions or comments about anything that I've said here today or anything in your practice. Yes. The
1: example of looking in the mirror, you've, I, I've heard you say that maybe three times, uh-huh. I, it finally makes sense. Oh, good. <laughs> it, it makes sense, because uh, you said this earlier on today, but uh-huh. you just ended with something about being in the present moment. And mm-hmm. so what, what I've been able to put together right now is, in the morning when I look in the mirror, just looking in the mirror mm-hmm. is the present moment. When I start to make an assessment or an evaluation, that's when my mind is starting to produce that's the products of the mind.
0: Absolutely.
1: But if I go back to saying, but you're just looking in the mirror, mm-hmm. that's the present. Right. So, that's what I got.
0: Great, great. Well, uh, and if if we can ground ourselves in the present, when we can ground ourselves in the present, we, um, we really have the opportunity to see things in a new way and and in that space, we have more choices. We have the ability to be more skillful. I, I gave a talk at um, CARA in Palo Alto last night. That's why I'm. I, my notes are all mixed up here. But one of the things that we were looking at, because we, we, we're grief counselors, and so we w- work with, with people who present with many, many deep, sadnesses and issues that they're overwhelmed with. And so uh, uh, what becomes clear when you can bring mindfulness into your work to, to see how you can ground yourself with mindfulness. So you come into my office or I come into your office and I'm just freaked out and I'm overwhelmed. And if you get overwhelmed with me, you're no help to me. We both get washed away, you see. And you don't have to, to sit there and tell me, look, you're overwhelmed. And you wouldn't. And, I, and, and as counselors, we wouldn't do that. with. But, but if we can hold ourselves, if we can ground ourselves, at least some aspect of ourselves, and be present with what actually is, Absent our ideas, you know, because someone might come in and the way that they deal with grief might be through anger, and then then oh, poor me i didn 't do anything don 't yell at me. you know what is this all about? It might freak you know I, I immediately go off on to how anger triggers me, but if I can see that this is anger, I can begin to see that there's I can begin to have the space to see that this is going to unfold in a certain way. This is how this person experiences anger and is expressing anger. This is what the anger is all about, or something. And I can just hold myself in that ground. I can become a container then, or we can become a container. And at that point, we're really helpful. And sometimes all we have to do is just listen. You know, We don't have to say anything. We just have to allow this storm to arise and have its have its day in court, so to speak. Um, so, but it's through mindfulness that we're able to do this. It's it, it, interesting because um, Thich Nhat Hanh said some years ago uh, in response to all of the, uh, the boat people that were fleeing uh, after the war in Vietnam, uh, and so many lives were being lost at sea the there were being you know the storms were sinking the boats, and pirates were you know getting on the boats and raping the women and murdering the men and so on and so forth and he said that uh, if on those small boats a single person in the the pack boat if a single person could maintain some level of mindfulness, there was a possibility for the boat to be saved. But if every single person on the boat was totally overwhelmed by the conditions that they found themselves in, there was no hope. And you begin to see that this is really an important the application of mindfulness, or the ability to be attentive to what's really happening, is, is critical. And without that ability to be present, it could be disastrous in situations like the boats, or in situations like when someone comes to see one of, one of us as counselors, and, um, and we're just not attentive, we're just not there. You know, so mindfulness is is what actually allows us to be in relationship with one another. you know if i 'm in relationship with you and i 'm um, <clears throat> presenting visually like i 'm really there with you, and you 're talking to me, and i 'm looking like i 'm listening, but i 'm thinking, oh, this afternoon I've got to go somewhere, or I forgot my glasses at home this morning, and what am I going to do with my junky spare glasses? <laughs> you see? It's like, okay, if I'm not there, who's here? You see? So the gift of mindfulness is attentiveness. It's, it's, that, it's that quality that allows the heart. To to connect with one another, you know? It's actually what each of us secretly wishes for ourselves. We all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. We all want to be feel that we're cared for. And that comes from being present. It doesn't come from being distracted. It allows us to totally engage at a very intimate and profound level Yes. Can I just say um, what you just described
1: about being present for someone, mm-hmm. uh, and then thinking about your glasses or some other thing? Um, it's. I think it's important just just to say that, um, w- even though your intention or our intention to be is to be there for people, mm-hmm. that those thoughts are going to happen.
0: Oh yeah. Of and that you
1: just you simply acknowledge. Oh that I'm. I'm thinking. I'm planning for the future, which brings you back. It's a lot like meditation.
0: Right. You, it is. You, you, and you, but, but I'm with just saying
1: for people here, don't, if you try, if your intention is to be there for somebody and you find yourself distracted, don't judge yourself and say, I, "I'm not able to do this." Yeah. You just need to be able to say, "Oh, that ha- that happens."
0: Right. Yeah. Yep. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And and when I was talking about applying mindfulness to a situation like that, I, I wasn't implying that, you know, I'll go back to how I started this. This is all a gradual path. We get it, and then we screw up. And then we get it again, and then we mess up again. And gradually, we begin to, you can learn how to listen. You know, I've I practiced learning how to listen. and. Um, gradually I'm getting it. I mean, think about when you were a student, and you, I'll think about when I was a student, I i could read a, a, a whole page, a whole chapter. <laughs> I read every word on the page, and it was like, huh? What did I read? I have to go back and do this over again. You see? It's just that the mind wasn't disciplined to just stay with what is you see and so <clears throat> and it's what is without judgment there's you know and judgment in this case is not seen as a lack of discrimination but a lack of this application of you know shame or pride or right or wrong or good or bad that has the negative qualities we have to discriminate, you know, if, if we're going to cross the street and the cars are coming, we know not to cross the street, we don't just say, there's nothing happening here, it doesn't make any difference. And, and the example that I just used, I, I want to say, because sometimes people think that mindfulness, because it, it just is seeing things at this bare level, that there's a kind of aloofness, that there's a kind of um, lack of passion. But it's the contrary. Mindfulness makes things much more interesting. We're much more engaged when we know what's going on. In relationship, when we're really present with one another, there's an opportunity to connect in ways that are really quite magical and mysterious and that really unfold in a way that allow us to continue the kind of insight and growth that um, feels exhilarating you know so um, so please practice mindfulness (laughs) I'm a fan (laughs) we're almost there So I want to thank you all today and next week I'll read my notes before I come in and um, I want to uh, take this opportunity to uh, share the merit of our combined practice and um, uh, really emphasize that uh, while this might seem a little bit odd The fact is that when we do bring attention to the way we live and to uh, the way we interact with other people, uh, it does ripple out. It touches the people that we live with, the people that we work with, the people that we meet in the street, and it just goes on and on and on. And um, uh, there may be some sort of energetic kind of resonance that is given off when people come together that's very powerful. So uh, may the merit of this benefit of our practicing the Dhamma together uh, uh, fill our lives and the lives of those whom we love and cherish, and and, uh, may we share this merit with all beings everywhere. Thank you.